And I think that people don't necessarily realize how automatically their bodies work. And this condition has given me really the insight and the knowledge of the inner working of how amazing the human body and nature and Hashem really is because everything works, not for me, but everything on other people works so seamlessly. And for me, it doesn't. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. When Rivka Hertzfeld was younger, she had a feeling that her muscles were not working the way that they should. During her year in Israel after high school, things got serious enough that her research intensified, and she soon discovered that she has an extremely rare degenerative condition that has seriously impacted her ability to use her muscles effectively. Doctors don't know what to call it, so they use the inexact term child-onset ALS. And this condition has affected her life in many ways, from needing a motorized scooter in place of walking, to challenges in dating, to her inability to be hired as a teacher, a job for which she is eminently qualified. Yet Rivka maintains her self-confidence, poise, humor, and faith in God. She refuses to let her disability define her, even though it sometimes seems that others want to do exactly that. In this conversation, Rivka relates her personal story and articulates some of the challenges that she faces. We talk about the ways in which the Orthodox world can develop greater sensitivity and provide increased accessibility, as well as some of the positive and negative experiences that she has had in synagogues, schools, and other institutions. And crucially, we discussed practical steps that we could all take to ensure that we treat people with the respect they deserve and find ways to bring them into our communities, rather than perhaps unintentionally walling them off outside. We'll get to that conversation in just a moment. First... Let me remind you to share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe to my new Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, where you can read my newest article, Thoughts on a Jewish Wedding in Jerusalem. The link is in the description of this podcast, so get your free subscription today. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rivka Hertzfeld earned an M.A. in Tanakh from Yeshiva University's Bernard Revel Graduate School of Judaic Studies. She enjoys teaching all Sifrei Tanakh to all age groups and levels of Judaic Studies background. 
She often teaches informally and has also taught at her current workplace, Cross River Bank, where she's a technical writer and analyst for the IT compliance department. Rivka is a respected disability awareness educator. She's passionate about politics, human rights, and liberty and justice for all. Rivka Hertzfeld, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's an honor to talk with you, and I'd like to ask you about your personal story. You and I have spoken a little bit, so I know something, but let's tell everybody listening what your story is, and well, I guess that's how we'll start with it. What's your story, Rivka? Okay, so I guess I would start by saying that my story really starts with a confusing feeling that I had as a small child during recess, and I would run and jump and play with my friends in the Mariah School uh, playground, but for some reason, I couldn't run as fast as I wanted to, and, you know, during relay races and during tag, for some reason, I felt though I did not know how to describe this, I thought that my body wasn't moving as fast as I wanted it to. And that was a confusing feeling that I really didn't know how to pinpoint with words. You know, I did Taekwondo as a kid. Uh, I actually have a second degree black belt, um, which is actually really cool. And I think, and doctors also think that it has staved off the degeneration of my muscles for quite some time. But I was just this kid who didn't know what was happening with her body. And as a self-identifying control freak, that was not something that I really was happy with. I had gone to Midrash Moriah for my year in Israel, and I had the best time there. I went with no friends. I decided that I wanted it to really be about the learning. And I couldn't do a hike one time. And I stayed on the bus, you know, a friend happened to not be feeling well. And I was just crying because I couldn't do what the psukim say, go and traverse the land. And I called my parents and I said, I don't know what to do. And they said, well, Bobby, we can't really help you from here. And Unfortunately, my three younger siblings had started experiencing muscle weakness earlier in time than I had in terms of age and also in terms of severity. And they said, you know, we've done testing on your siblings. If you want to figure this out, you're 18, you're on your own. And so I decided that I would ask my pediatrician, you know, who do you know who could possibly help me with this? They connected me with a genetic researcher at Hackensack University Medical Center. Rivka, I'm curious. Are you still in Israel when this was going on? Yeah. So you're doing this from a distance? I was doing this from a distance. Yeah. And I contacted a researcher. He said, when you get back, let's talk. And so I had a map. I had a plan of what to do. Um, One of my... Rabbeam, my favorite Rebbe, uh, Rev Eitan Meyer, he said to me, Rivka, what are you doing? Like, you need to figure out what this is. And I agreed with him wholeheartedly because the truth is that I was thinking, what if Hashem makes some sort of condition, cure, and I don't know what I'm dealing with. And on, you know, the nightly news, 
Diane Sawyer announces, congratulations, we have a cure for this disease. And I don't know that I have that. Then there would be a gap of understanding and of knowledge. And so I decided that finding out what this mysterious muscle ailment was, would be my first thing on my checklist. Okay. Now, did you assume it was the same thing that your younger siblings had, given that you had three younger siblings with a certain genetic condition? I did, but I didn't know what it was because nobody really knew what it was. It would be something like, oh, you know, there's muscle weakness. It's like this condition called Charcot-Marie Tooth, but it's also not like this condition called Charcot-Marie Tooth. I'll explain. Um, Charcot-Marie Tooth is a degenerative muscle condition that really impacts people's feet. And if you Google Charcot-Marie Tooth foot, there is an inwardness to the foot. It looks like a parentheses mark a little bit. So I thought, oh, I guess we have that. But things in my daily life weren't making sense with that diagnosis. And so that's why I really wanted to really pinpoint what this was. And I want to go back before we continue, because I'm a little bit confused when you said that you have a black belt in Taekwondo, which I assume requires tremendous muscle coordination and strength. How does that jive with the fact that you felt that your body wasn't responding properly and your muscles were not really strong? That sounds like they were very strong. Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's part of the, yes, I'm going to use the word conundrum, ironically. That was the conundrum that all doctors face. I mean, a couple of years ago, my family and I actually went to the NIH, the National Institute of Health, uh, down in Baltimore, Maryland, slash Bethesda. And they said to us, you know, this is really curious. This is super fascinating, which honestly is not something that you want to hear from doctors. Like you don't want to hear that you're fascinating. But from my understanding, the brain is sending a message to my muscles and my neurotransmitters to do something in, let's say, one language, in, let's say, English. And my muscles only understand Hebrew. And so normally what would happen is these things called sphingolipids that are sent from your brain to your muscles would help translate that but something is getting stuck in translation. And so it's not that my muscles can't do anything. They just do things more slowly. This was all found out pretty recently. Um, And doctors had, you know, mapped my whole genome. None of my siblings wanted to be involved, which I understand. They, They don't want to feel like lab rats. I don't mind feeling like a lab rat. I hear. We're going to get back to the lab rat later on because I want to ask you about something else. And uh, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. But if I can ask you, does that mean that it's a neurological disease or a muscular disease or some sort of combination? It's a combination of both. Really, the problem is that it's a spinal cord problem. And, you know, because there's DNA and there's RNA. So the problem is in my DNA. But part of the problem is when the RNA is interpreting the DNA. That's just a hint that researchers and doctors haven't necessarily figured out how to solve without dying. Well, 
let's put that aside for a moment. Yeah. Rivka, practically speaking, what does that mean that you can and cannot do now? How has it affected your life on a practical level? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it also depends on the day. And it even depends on something as simple or silly as the weather. When it is cold outside, my muscles do not work as well. That's just a fact on the ground that I have figured out over time. Um, I use my motorized scooter, but I cannot get out of my motorized scooter by myself. So somebody needs to help me transfer. But it doesn't require something like a Hoyer lift, which a lot of aid agencies want a person to use. I personally and my siblings and my parents even feel that a Hoyer lift um, makes a person feel like a piece of meat rather than a human being. And so we don't use Hoyer lifts in the Hertzfeld house, but, you know, it just requires my speaking to my body kindly. It requires a lot of thought. Like if I want to do something like write my name on a check. It requires me to have a certain pen because my fingers can hold that pen in a better way. It requires my, you know, leaning on a certain surface that is a good height for me to have my elbow resting upon, you know, and I think that people don't necessarily realize how automatically their bodies work. And this condition has given me really the insight and the knowledge of the inner working of how amazing the human body and nature and Hashem really is because everything works not for me but everything on other people works so seamlessly and for me it doesn't and is it something which is going to progress more or is it holding now how does that work really good question um so it's known as a degenerative disease Doctors actually like to call it childhood onset ALS, which as I'm sure you can understand, Scott, I don't love that name. (laughs) It makes it sound like I'm going to die soon, Um, which I am not. Baruch Hashem. Um, Doctors said to me, no, we plan on your living a very, very long time. (laughs) To which I said, great, me too. So childhood onset ALS, It doesn't act like regular ALS because my life is not in danger, but they don't know because there are really only seven, maybe nine people on earth who actually have the same genetic condition that my three siblings and I have. So that means that literally half the people on earth who have this genetic condition are in your immediate family. Yeah. Wow. Let's talk about some of the personal challenges that you've had to face, Rivka, as a result of this particular disability. And you've said a lot, and I want to get back to some of the other points you made, but in terms of challenges that you face, you mentioned writing checks, you mentioned you're in a motorized scooter. What are some of the other difficulties that you face in day-to-day life? Yeah. um, I didn't get to have the job that I wanted to have. I wanted to be a Tanakh teacher. I have a master's degree in Tanakh from Revel. Um, I have jokingly said to some friends, they don't just give those out like candy. Like you have to, you have to work pretty hard for it. Um, I did well on my exit exam and I actually, after going through over 40 interview processes, 
with different Jewish day schools in the New York, New Jersey area and being told time and again, oh, you're just not the right fit for our school, which is really good code switching on their part for saying, you're great. We like your credentials, but you have a disability, so we don't want to hire you. After finally crying to a friend and saying, I don't know what else I can do. She said to me, why don't you work at my dad's bank? I said, because I don't know anything about finance. (laughs) To which she jokingly said, neither does my dad. (laughs) Um, And I've been working for Cross River Bank now for five years. And they accept me fully as I am. I went into the interview process and I told them, hey, um, I walk more slowly than other people. So when we're going around the building, just be aware of that. Because I was walking at the time. I don't feel comfortable on my feet anymore. I don't trust my ankles. I don't trust my body, which is a very hard thing to say. And it's also just a hard reality that I don't trust my own feet to hold me up. But I don't. And they said to me, why can't we get you a motorized scooter? They were the ones who said to me, why can't we just get you a motorized scooter? You can do the job otherwise. And it was such a light bulb moment for me because nobody had ever wanted to problem solve with me. Nobody had ever wanted to find a solution for me. The question was always, Oh, well, what if there's a fire drill? What if you're taking the kids to recess? Like, okay, they can, you know, walk more slowly or, you know, I I don't know. But that was something that was never even broached. Rivka, do you still want to be a teacher someday? Is that something which you have maintained in your dreams? I don't actually know because it feels as though The world of education has rejected me and not just once, not just twice, but over 40 times. And that's just a really heavy burden to hold. It's a lot for a person to try and still keep her own sense of self and sense of self-worth and even your dignity because why are you trying at something? Why are you trying to fit into a, a space that doesn't want you? And actually, at the last interview that I had, the principal told me straight to my face, like, oh, but you have, a, you have a walking issue. And I said, I'm fully aware of that, which you and I both know, Scott, is completely illegal. It's like, you're not allowed to ask a person about his or her disability, that's what the American with Disabilities Act of 1996 stipulates. And I said to this principal, you know what's funny? And he said, what? And I said, Moshe Rabinu was kvadpo kvadlashon, which means that he either had a speech impediment, a stutter, or both, and he taught Torah to everybody. And the principal was flabbergasted, And I continued and I said, you know, Yaakov had a walking problem and Yitzhak was blind and Mephibosheth ate at David Hamach's table. And, you know, there were lots of women who were at Harut. And isn't that a good opportunity 
to have a living Torah. And this principal said nothing to me. And I went back in the car and I cried on the way home because I knew I wasn't going to get the job. It sounds a little bit like the story of Rabbi Nachman, The Seven Beggars, which talks about the seven archetypes of Judaism, every one of whom has a physical disability. It talks about the Mm -hmm. blind beggar obviously representing Yitzchak and the beggar who stuttered, as you said, representing Moshe. Each one of the seven archetypes has a particular disability and their stories, each one of them tells a story. Their stories indicate that you think I have a disability, but it actually represents a superpower. And on some level, I think what you're saying now about Moshe Rabbeinu and about those other heroes of Jewish life who had these disabilities and yet they became our superheroes, that could be the case of anyone with a disability. It's a matter of how you look at it. Absolutely. And I think that it's actually so narrow-minded of the Jewish day schools in this area, at least my area of New York, New Jersey, because what a beautiful opportunity to teach that, A, there are differences in people and we still accept them. B, that Torah can be taught by anybody and anybody can be good at Torah. And C, that, you know, you think that you have a learning problem Ms. Hertzfeld or Mora Rifko or whatever I would be called, she has a walking problem. She can't walk anymore, but she still devotes her life to the Torah of Hashem and to mitzvot. And aren't you able to look at her as a role model? But that's okay because I don't, I don't need to be in that space. I think I can do that outside of the space. I see that very, very clearly. Rivka, I want to ask you maybe a two-personal question, but when you talked before about seeing the wonders of the human body and how it's so amazing, this thing that Hashem created, like we say in the bracha of Asher Yatsar, Asher Yatsar et Hadam B'chokhmah, Hashem created the human being with wisdom. And you said, well, not for me, but for everybody else. You obviously are a person with emun and bitachon. We've talked before this podcast about that. How do you balance that? The fact that the human being, you see it as being so beautiful by virtue of the things that you can't do. How do you hold that tension? How do you hold that in balance, that belief along with the fact that it doesn't work for you? So I believe that time is not stagnant. Um, I believe that Hashem has a plan and that I don't know that plan and as I said before, um, being a being a little bit of a control freak, that is quite a challenge for me. But I don't believe that I'm going to be disabled forever. I really, really don't. I don't believe that my siblings are going to be disabled forever. I believe that Hashem works. And so a couple of months ago, I watched this really interesting documentary on Netflix called Fantastic Fungi. Because I'm that type of nerd who will watch a a Netflix special on fungus. Okay. And in this special, there was a mycologist named Dr. Paul Samets. And he was speaking about this mushroom called a turkey tail mushroom. And he mentioned that this particular mushroom has neural pathways in the mushroom that mimic from the brain down the spinal cord. 
And so there has been research done by different mycologists who are trying to figure out how this can possibly be a medication that people can use. So that way they don't have to use opioids or other types of heavy duty drugs. And so I immediately emailed the doctors at the NIH and I said, hey, this is a thing that I found. Could this be anything? And they said, you know what? We can test this out on the specimen of your skin and of your DNA that we have in our labs. And they're doing testing of different drugs. You know, they're just going through the book because who knows what will freeze the sphingolipid production without completely mitigating it. That's that's the hink of the problem is that we just need to put a pause on the production of sphingolipids without completely stopping it. They have a drug that will stop the production of sphingolipids. They don't have an on-off switch kind of drug. But I really believe that everything that Hashem created can be found somewhere in nature. And we are just either not smart enough or we haven't found the solution yet. Hashem runs the world and Hashem runs everybody's life. And so when you say about emunah mitachon, I'm not going to say that it's easy all the time. I'm not going to say that I don't get angry. In fact, I do get angry. I, you know, there was a spate of time in which I didn't do the whole davening thing. I didn't. Except for on Shabbat, because I'm very much a shul person. I love my shul. I was on the board of my shul. You know, shul shul is my weird, happy place. I don't think that's so weird, but okay. Okay. Um, other people find it a little I know. strange. <laughs> um, and so I had the feeling of, I'm not talking to you right now. Like, no, I will talk to you on Shabbat. We will have a once a week conversation. We're not going to talk other times during the week. And I think that that's okay. I think that if we're really supposed to view Hashem, not only as the Ribbono Shalom, but like also as our Avinu Shabbat Shamayim, then there has to be that duality of, I don't want to talk to you right now. Like I'm part of my friend. I'm pissed at you. Like you gave me this really hard peckle. I don't know how to deal with it. We're not talking today. And I think that's okay. But you are talking now, it sounds like. Yeah, we're talking. Um, I'm not getting any answers. And that's also a really difficult reality to deal with. But at the same time, I also recognize that maybe I am getting answers. Maybe I'm getting answers by the fact that doctors from the NIH wanted to talk to me and my family. Maybe I'm getting response in the fact that I was a guest speaker at the National Adolescent Childhood Symposium of some sort on rare diseases. That was a little crazy because world experts were asking me questions. So that was like a little funny and bizarre. Um, but maybe that's, maybe that's the way that this plan is supposed to go. And maybe the way that this is supposed to happen is 
because I'm a little bit of a Harif person and because I'm a little bit annoying, maybe I'm supposed to make changes in the world in this way. And maybe I'm supposed to talk to shuls and schools and write articles about accessibility because nobody else is going to do it. Then let's talk about that now because you wrote an article about a month ago. It was in the Times of Israel. It was entitled A Waste of an Outfit. And you described two incidents in two different synagogues where you specifically asked whether events were accessible. You were assured that the events in question were accessible. And in the end, they weren't. Can you recount those episodes and what happened? Yeah, surely. So the first um, the first event that I wanted to go to was actually like a Missy Bath Purim. It was some sort of pre-Purim party. And it was going to be on Saturday night, uh, March 11th. And, you know, I recount in the article that I get dressed once in the morning because that's difficult. It's difficult to change outfits. So I got dressed for the party. You know, I did my thing. And... You know, I had to hire an accessible vehicle. Now, I'll parenthetically say that why did I have to hire an accessible vehicle to take me there is because there is no accessible Uber. There is no accessible Lyft. There is no direct way for me to be able to get to my house in Teaneck to Brooklyn without having to take a million different modes of public transportation, and even all of the time, even though they're supposed to be accessible, sometimes bus drivers will not stop for a person if they have to put the lift down. So it's just easier for me to hire an accessible vehicle. So I did that. We went, and this driver, she happens to be amazing, and I use her all the time. So she said to me, "Um, Rivka, there's a step here. I said to her, oh, Doxy, that's not a big deal. I brought the ramp because I have been burned before. I have brought the ramp. So go up. And then I, I'm, she says to me, actually, wait here, Rifka. I'm going to go make sure that this space is accessible because she already knows from different times that she has taken me to different venues that not every space is accessible. So she comes back and she says, we got to go. And I said to her, what do you mean? And she said, first of all, they don't have any way for you to get down to the basement. There is no elevator. There are two stair lifts. I don't trust. And she said, I don't trust these people to be able to help you. They brought six curtains of alcohol down the stairs. She said, I don't trust them to be able to help you and to be sober enough to help you. Which... I honestly wouldn't have felt safe or comfortable anyway. The woman who was running the event came out to the car. She was crying, which I found to be a little ironic and a little bit funny. And she said, Rifka, what if I got two strong men to carry you in your scooter down the stairs? And I said to her, I'm not trusting my body to anybody. Because this is the one body that I have. And if somebody loses his balance on the step and I go flying out, he is not hurt. I'm broken. So that was one situation. Let me ask you about that situation, Rivka, just yeah. before you continue. 
what did they mean when they told you initially it was accessible? It sounds like that's the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah. So they meant that there are two stair lifts for two different staircases. And, you know, an Altazadi can use the stair lift to go down to the kids' room and get a piece of potato kugel or an egg peehole. Maybe you can use this also. So for the second event, I eliminated the word accessible from my vocabulary because that clearly means different things to different people. So the next event was a little bit like a week and a half before Pesach. And so I called up, you know, the young Israel of Holliswood and I said, hi, my name is Rufka Hertzfeld. I cannot get out of the motorized scooter that I am in. Is your event space accessible for somebody like me? And they said, yes, absolutely. We have an elevator that goes all the way down to the basement. So I thought, perfect. I booked a ride with Doxy. Amazing. But they didn't have the elevator key. And so the event space wasn't really accessible because if you don't have the elevator key for a person who needs the elevator, then that's just as good as having a fire extinguisher somewhere in the building when a fire breaks out. I'm sorry to hear that. That must have been so frustrating. I want to mention something that you said in the article. I'm going to quote you, Rivka. You wrote, there's an old saying that you can't understand another person until you walk in his or her moccasins. But in this case, since the moccasins are a scooter, the people on the other end are unlikely to understand what any disabled person means when he or she asks about accessibility. And I'm guessing that this reality of the inability to be in your moccasins is true for many listeners right now. So can you offer us some practical guidelines of what needs to change? What are some of the ways that our synagogues, schools, and other institutions can be doing more when it comes to accessibility? Certainly not hiding the key to the elevator. What other things need to change in general? Yeah, having a sign to the ramp. If, you know, if the ramp is hidden. Um, I went to the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies, which is on Yeshiva University's campus in First Hall. And that was stressful every time I went to class because I would have to go up the stairs with my rolling ankles and my wobbly feet. And, you know, I would then go to the elevator and be fine. On my last day of Revel, after I took my comprehensive exam, the security guard, who happened to be named like Craig or something, he said to me, hey, Rifka, why don't you use the ramp? And I said to him, what are you talking about, Craig? And he said, girl, you didn't know that there was a ramp to this building? And I said, again, what are you talking about? There had been a ramp to the building that was hidden in a door that goes straight out to Amsterdam Avenue. And so I called up, you know, a friend in YU and I said, hey, funny thing. And I recounted my story and I said, can you do me a little bit of a weird favor and just like put a sign there that says accessible entrance right here. And so they have that sign now, but even not knowing that there is an accessible entrance is a barrier to entry for people like me who are otherwise totally fine, but our bodies don't work in the same way. 
And so make a sign visible. Recognize that there needs to be a fire plan. I love my shul, but one time a fire alarm went off and, you know, everybody was filing out of the building. And my rabbi, my Morda Asr, with whom I have a very good relationship, he looked at me and he said, Rivka, what do we do with you? To which I responded with a little bit of hairy foot. And I said, I guess I just birdie her like a carbonola. And he said, no, like, I will take you out on my shoulders if I need to. And I said, listen, I'm pretty sure that there isn't a fire. There's no kiddish today. Nobody would have touched the stove. I'm okay, but I'm going to ask you if I can call the fire chief of the town and we go over what are some good ways to get people out because there happen to be a couple of people in my shul who have varying degrees of disability. There are a couple of people who have MS. There are some people who use canes. This is not something that should be taken lightly. And I think that schools, shuls, they can very much mitigate this problem by just thinking, oh, how would how would my bubby get out? How would my Zadie get out? How would, you know, if my kid broke his or her leg, what would happen? I think that that's a really good way to frame for people what needs to happen. Rivka, from what you're saying, a lot of these issues are a question of sensitivity as much as they're questions of accessibility, of people being aware that there is a problem as much as trying to find solutions. Obviously, the first step is having that sensitivity. And from what you wrote and from what you're saying right now, it sounds like too many people forget the fact that their buildings may not be accessible. They don't even realize there's a problem in the first place, that they should be accessible and they should be trying to make accommodations. In what ways has that been manifest in your life, that lack of sensitivity? Aside from the fact that I don't get to teach Torah because of lack of sensitivity, um, it has really been difficult to date. Um, and that might sound like Narishkite, but, you know, people have said to me things like, oh, well, I don't have, I don't have any disabled friends with whom I could set you up. To which my response has been, hey, would you only set up your black friend with somebody who is black? To which all of my friends to whom I have asked this question have said, no, of course not, Khalila. And I said, right, because it's one thing that is a physical attribute that has nothing to do with the person's personality, hopes, dreams, feelings, the way that they live their life, nothing. I said, same thing with me. This happens to be something that is unfortunately all-encompassing, but it's a physical attribute that doesn't speak to who I am. It doesn't speak to what I want my future to be like. It doesn't speak to how good of a mother or wife I would be or could be. And so you're not you, Rabbi Khan, but you, a person who is asking me about this, why are you being so limited? Why are you putting me in the blue box of the disability? Defining you by your disability rather than seeing it as one characteristic among many. Yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. I have also been told, though, by 
some very close friends. And I'm not trying to sound like a Baalad's Gaiva, Halila, but I have been told by many friends, Rivka, you are just very intelligent. And we don't know anybody who's smart enough for you, which I also think is a little silly because that that's not how that's not how shiduchim should work. It should work by oh, do you do you like to laugh? Are you a little bit funny? Great, like go out have a cup of coffee. I hear it. Let's talk about dating a little bit more. I'm curious what you would recommend when somebody goes out. This is something which we did speak about before we went on the air about a date potentially asking you about the prospects of motherhood, for example. And if someone were to ask that, it could on the one hand be seen as extremely insensitive. And what are you talking about? That's so offensive. And on the other hand, if you have a serious relationship with somebody, it's not an unreasonable thing for someone to wonder about. So can you maybe explain how you balance that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I would personally balance it in multiple ways. Unfortunately, I have been asked about future motherhood potential on first dates. I would say that, number one, don't ask that on a first date. That feels like you're really, really jumping the gun. I don't even know if I like you yet. I don't even know if I want to spend this amount of time with you. Why are you asking me about my ability to bear children? Also, be very careful in your language because somebody one time asked me on a date, would you be able to carry a child? So I, in my hairy foot, my a little bit bluntness said, do you mean gestationally or in my arms? To which he looked up, he pondered at that. And he said, I guess both. So I said, well, I don't even know if I like you right now in order to go out on a second date. And also, nobody can possibly know whether or not she can just date a child before she does so. So, thanks. Like, I think that it's just having a little bit of chachma, having a little bit of human knowledge and intelligence to know like, oh, hey, I shouldn't ask that question. I think that if I were to date somebody for a while, I think that that would be something that would probably come up naturally. Like, hey, I really like you. What's a way that we can make this work? What's a, what is something fun that we can both enjoy while spending time with each other? Because a person wanted to go out with me on Lagba Omer and he wanted to do archery. Scott, that would not have been a great idea. That feels, in fact, like a terrible idea because aside from the fact that a person needs upper body strength to shoot a bow and arrow, like, so even if I couldn't do it, what if I shot myself in the foot? What if I then had a broken toe? Like, there are just so many things about that situation. And so I'm going to be perfectly honest. I said, no, we're not doing that. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I can't do that. I don't feel comfortable even trying to do that. The fact that you're trying to pressure me to do that is making me feel uncomfortable. And why don't we just go out for coffee? Okay, Rifka, let me ask you about that because I really understand what you mean. 
And I also, if I want to put on his moccasins for a moment, he might think, again, not knowing who this person is, he might say, what do you mean, Rivka? I am not treating you like your disability defines you. I'm saying that maybe that's a detail about you, but I want to do fun things with you. This one might not work, but in theory, he's not defining you based on one characteristic, which is what you said that you want. The reason I'm asking that question is not to put you on the spot. It's more because I think this is a bigger question for many people. I think probably most good-minded people want to be sensitive. They want, on the one hand, not to say something offensive, not to treat any disabled person or anyone for that matter in a way which that person will find offensive. And on the other hand, they may not know what is offensive. They might be afraid to say anything for fear of saying something offensive. So could you give some practical guidance to all of us about some ideas of some ways of being able to not treat you like your disability is who you are, but at the same time to have that sensitivity so that we're not saying things that are offensive or that bother you or make you feel pressured? Yeah, that's a great question and a good point that I hadn't actually thought of. Um, I think that a really good way to know is to just ask in a sensitive way. If somebody sees that I'm in a scooter, then maybe say to me, hey, what are some fun things that you like to do or that you are able to do? That's a really good way to ask without talking down to a person. That's a really good way to figure out what their interests are. That's a really good way to be able to gauge what they're able to do and what they're not able to do. So I'll give you an example. If he had said to me, hey, would you like to go on a hike? I love nature. I love hiking. I would ask a follow-up question of how much bramble is there going to be on the trail? How rocky is the trail going to be? How steep is the incline going to be? Because I need to know if my scooter can handle it. But asking a person, hey, what are your interests? I love a museum. Um, I love any kind of museum. So, you know, something like that, that's perfectly fine. My scooter can handle that, no problem. You know, different, th I think that there's a way to ask, like, hey, what do you enjoy doing? Hey, what is something that, or, or even ask in this way, do you have any ideas as to what would be a good thing for us to do? That way you're not putting the person down. You're not putting the pressure on them because you're trying to come together in a cohesive unit to say, hey, what would be a good thing for us to do? Okay, that makes sense. I want to broaden it beyond dating per se, though, into other interactions. I'll give an example that you said to me that Please. in the disabled community, putting your hand on a scooter is considered by many people or maybe everybody, I don't know, a violation of personal space. It's almost like putting your hand on their body. I'm glad you told me that. It's not something which would have occurred to me. In fact, I would have thought as someone who isn't in a scooter that, what do you mean? I'm not defining you as a scooter. Therefore, it's not your body. Obviously, that's not the case. But I'm sure there are plenty of examples like that, depending on the disability, depending on the situation, depending on the person. Obviously, everyone's different also. So again, asking for practical advice and also, of course, realizing, Rivka, that you are one person and you cannot represent anyone with a disability. I'm asking for your opinion here. But given that, how do you suggest that people navigate that attempt to 
treat people with respect and dignity and treating them as far more than their disability, while at the same time not making mistakes like putting their hand on the scooter, which is done unintentionally, but offensively. Right. So I'll just, if it's okay with you, I'll give a little bit more detail into when people touch the scooter. When people touch the scooter, they might not realize that they are moving a person like me. If a person's hand touches the joystick, even a little bit, I am going to move. And if I don't want to move, or if I have no intention of moving, that might be a shock to me and to you. People have run over their own feet by accidentally bumping into my scooter. And so I I shut the scooter off now. You know, there are there are really good ways to ask. There, you know, if a person wants to touch my arm, a person's not necessarily going to ask, hey, can I touch your arm as like a glutty? Or can I touch your arm to show you that I'm feeling you know, feeling your pain or really proud of you. But touching my scooter, that doesn't feel the same. That feels fundamentally different because then you are equating me with the scooter. And I know that that might be confusing because the scooter helps me and the scooter enables me to do a lot of things like walking or getting to school on time that I wouldn't be able to do without it. But it's a tricky balance by not equating a person with his or her disability. You know, it would be like, and pardon me for saying this, but it would be like my saying to you with glasses, Hey, can you see that? And your, and your answer might be, of course I can see that because I'm wearing my glasses. So it just enables me to do the thing that I would otherwise be able to do. And so, you know, nobody touches a person's glasses. Nobody touches a person's hearing aid. Nobody would ever touch a person's walking stick or cane if he or she is blind. So I think that there just has to be a recognition of this device is enabling a person to be the maximum of her potential. And it's it's aiding her it is not her it is not who she is it is enabling her to be the best rifka to the ultimate capacity okay thank you for explaining that rifka that does make more sense even though it's still i'm sure a difficult thread to needle but I understand and I appreciate it because there are so many people who are well-meaning and they just don't want to make a mistake saying something offensive by mistake simply out of ignorance. And I, I appreciate your being willing to talk about why that's the case of the scooter. And I'm sure every individual situation just requires communication and being sensitive and being open to listening to the person to explain it. Absolutely. This is how I feel, Scott. A person can never go wrong with asking too many questions. A person can never entrap himself or ensnare himself or herself in a situation that is then going to come back to be offensive later if you just ask a question because you're coming because then that also shows that you want to learn that you're coming from a place with a lack of knowledge and that you want to be more knowledgeable yeah that makes sense Let's talk about some positive experiences. I certainly hope you've had some positive experiences, Rifka. Are there specific individuals or institutions 
whom you would celebrate for demonstrating the requisite sensitivity and providing full accessibility and being aware and simply being open to your needs. Yeah. Um, so my shul, Congregation Beth Aaron, I was born there. I was, I, I've been going to that shul for my whole life. And as I said, it feels like home. Um, when I started using not a scooter, but even when I started using wheelchair to get to shul, and then I had to get up a step to get into the Ezra Nashim, the women's section. I said to Rabbi Rothwax, I said, um, hey, weird question. Can we just gradate this step to the women's section? Because if a person is coming from the Shabbat elevator, because he or she needs a Shabbat elevator, and then there is another step, I said, then we just undid all of the stress and the step going up that we avoided by using the Shabbat elevator. So by Rothwax asking a question from a place of not knowing asked me, oh, well, how would we do that? That would probably cost so much money. You know, we would have to level the whole platform. To which I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, all we have to do is gradate the steps. So I explained what gradating the step means and I'll explain it now. It means that let's say a step is five inches tall. You move forward about half an inch and then you would make the the platform 4.75 inches tall. And then you would move forward another half an inch and then you would make it 4.74 inches tall as you're moving forward so that you're essentially creating a ramp. And when I said that to Rabbi Rothbox and I explained it to him, he said, oh, so why can't we do that? And you said, we can. Yeah, very simple fix. It was done by that Shabbat. I had a discussion with Rabbi Rothbox on Monday. It was done by Friday. So it's a very simple solution. It didn't cost ten thousands of dollars. It cost maybe a thousand bucks, which is somewhere in the school budget. Having been on the board of my school for the past two years, I've seen the school budget, you know, so at least that's my experience. But, you know, please just just ask. And that's great. So that was a very, very good experience. I'm glad to hear there are positive experiences out there. Yeah, there are positive experiences out there. I mean, I went around Yeshiva University with a friend and we labeled every area and I wrote it down on a list and I brought it to, you know, the vice provost at the time. This was already over 10 years ago. And I had come up with solutions for every single point and they didn't fix all of them, but they did fix some. And that's a big deal, you know, something as simple as putting a sign up on the door to Revel saying, hey, press this button if you need somebody to open up the accessible entrance for you. That's mind-blowingly huge. Recognizing that you can call the librarian over on the fifth floor and say, hey, I can't get down to the archives because they're down a flight of stairs or you know i can't get that chemistry book from the reservation desk or the reference library because it's down a flight of steps you know 
a certain librarian said to me, well, I'm happy to get that for you. And I said, oh, I didn't know. It's good to know that the story isn't entirely negative or derogatory. There also are some positive experiences out there. That's very important to know. A hundred percent. And I think that also, you know, I have friends whose kids have asked me questions. And I think that that's a really important thing. You know, adults are really wary of insulting people. Kids are not. It's not gratifying, but it's really amazing how kids just sop up and they understand what you let them understand. And so it's not a crazy situation that I'm in, you know, and they actually asked me, there happens to be a man in my school who is also in a motorized scooter, who is not a sibling of mine. And they said, hey, does he have what you have? And I said, no, that's actually different. And I'm able to explain things in a concrete scientific way. I think also that people think that kids are less intelligent because they don't know as much. But it really just means that you, the adult, have to break it down into bite-sized chunks. And they're less inhibited. They're willing to ask the questions that you're willing to answer. The other people are wary of saying, well, I don't want to insult her. I don't want to, I want to pretend I don't notice. So it probably is helpful to be a child and to think like a child in these cases. A hundred percent. I also think that it's very funny when people try to pretend to not notice when it's like, you're six feet tall. I'm five feet when I'm standing and not in my scooter. I'm definitely shorter when I'm sitting in my scooter. Like you're looking down at me, not because you're looking down at me emotionally, but you're looking down at me because I'm in a scooter. Like there is just a, there's a difference in airspace when you're talking and so let's not pretend like let's just accept the fact that you're in this situation you're doing the best that you can and go weiter you know Rivka one of the reasons I think this is so important apart from everything that you're talking about and certainly for the benefit of the disabled community and people who require accessibility there's also another aspect too which might sound almost self-centered but it could happen to anybody. We can't think that this is their problem. This is the problem of people who are in a wheelchair or a motorized scooter or who are blind. We always think of them as them. And the fact is that we could be them too. None of us know what tomorrow is going to bring. I hope not. But at the same time, we can't pretend that this is helping a particular person or a particular community because I'm so generous. In fact, it's actually helping everybody because nobody knows what the future will bring. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I think that aside from the fact that people get old, some people get old. So having two steps to get up to the BIMA for an Altozadi or a Saba to get an Aliyah at his grandson's Ofrof. And if you have 10 people surrounding him to make sure that he doesn't pitch backward and fall, why can't we just create a ramp? In fact, the Pasuk says, meaning, don't go up steps to my Mizbeach. And actually, it's very funny because last year, when that pasuk was read from the bima by the balkore, I locked eyes with Rabbi Rothwax, and he just made this face like, "I know." And I was like, 
as new, you know, like, what are we doing about it? Because everyone can have a problem. You know, anyone can break a leg. Anyone can have a freak accident happen to them. My neighbor with whom I share some part of backyard, this is the member of my shore who is also in a scooter. Um, he was fixing a tarp on his sukkah when it was raining and he slipped and fell and he's a paraplegic. It can really happen to anybody. I have multiple friends who have vision problems. You know, I have a friend who she said to me once, I don't drive past 4 p.m. in the summer and I don't drive past like 2 p.m. in the winter. She said, because I know that I cannot see and I will be a danger to other people on the road and that's it. So like my husband comes and picks me and the kids up and then we reverse engine in the morning you know I was at a singles event once and I was speaking with a person who happened to be kind of tall he you know he was ignoring me and that's that's okay um and I went over to him and I said hey Loney," and he said oh I'm so sorry I did not hear you and I said oh like because of the difference in space because like I'm down here and you're up there and he said no because I literally have a hearing problem like I need a cochlear implant and I said oh and he said yeah like I need to get that done and I just haven't gotten around to it yet but that was something that you know that's a hidden disability and my disability happens to be very very visible and that's okay but I think that people just in general, can be more sensitive. You know, that guy, he's not having shidduch problems because his cochlear implant is inside his ear. But I'm having shidduch problems because I sit in a scooter. And that's just, and I get it, that's a difference, but I also recognize that science is amazing and that I have double-checked with the top scientists in the world with whom I weirdly have a good relationship. And I don't have to have a kid with this. One guy one time said to me, oh, well, you know, doing genetic things, you know, but and I said, you know what? The tzatzaliezer is weirdly okay with, you know, mixing genetic material in a Petri dish. And I said, and I know that because I went to Mijesha Maria and the Tzitzeliezer was the postache for Mijesha Maria and for Shari Tzedek Hospital. So like, if it's okay for the Tzitzeliezer, it's okay for me. I want to ask you two more questions before we go. Yeah, please. The first one is about Rivka Mouse, which I alluded to about an hour ago. Who is Rivka Mouse? Rivka Mouse is a tiny mouse woman who lives in the bowels of the NIH. Um, she is a mouse that has components of my DNA. So when I was at the NIH, um, I spat into a cup. I gave some blood. I, you know, gave genetic material. And they injected that into a mouse. Now, what's actually super fascinating is that the mouse was 
you know, walking fine for the first couple of days. And then it was limping on its back two legs, which is astounding. So what the people at the NIH, the scientists and the doctors are trying to do is rather than test drugs out on me, a human, they are going to test drugs out on Rifka Mouse. And so they tried out, you know, a particular drug on her and then she was walking fine, but then she died four days later. So one of the researchers said, we didn't love that option. And I said, yeah, me neither. Like, I don't love that. Right. Good. They tested out on Rifka Mouse. Correct. That's why they tested out on Rifka Mouse. But things are happening. And I really believe that Shua Hashem Kaharfayin, that things can change and salvation can come in the proverbial blink of an eye of Hashem. Hashem and I are just in a proverbial staring contest. And I say proverbial because we all know that Hashem does not have eyes because Rambam. Of course. My last question for you, Rivka, is could you tell me what your sweatshirt says? I think our listeners would like to know. Yeah. Uh, my sweatshirt says behind every strong woman is a story that gave her no choice. Okay. Why did you wear that sweatshirt today? Um, I wore that sweatshirt today because honestly, I found this sweatshirt online. I mean, it was put to me in an ad and that's scary for a whole bunch of other, you know, snooping reasons of internet trolls. But I have no choice but to be an advocate for myself. I have no choice but to be an advocate for this whole community because nobody else is going to do it. And I have no choice but to be as strong and strong-willed as I can. I have no choice but to try my hardest and try my best. One of my best friends, she said to me once, actually, Riff, you do have a choice. You could sit in your room, balled up in a corner, and cry. And I said to her, but what good does that do me? I said, because then I'm just sitting in a ball in a corner in my room and crying. I said, I want to see everything. I want to be the person that I always thought I could be. I really believe, aside from the fact that I don't believe that I'm going to be in this situation forever, Hashem created a big, beautiful world. And I have seen very, very little of it. And I want to be the explorer that I always wanted to be. When I was little, I wanted to be an astronaut. I happened to share a birthday with Neil Armstrong, and I thought that that would be cute and kitschy. My dad then dashed those dreams by posing a few halachic questions, like, how would you keep Shabbat? How would you David? There's no sun up there. It's like, okay, like, whatever. But I really do believe that Hashem gave me the ability to be strong because I can handle it. And that's a very hard thing to recognize also that like Hashem doesn't give anybody a test that they can't handle. Okay, like then I wish I were less capable of handling such a hard test. But that's not the way that this works. And this works by you are given a challenge, you are given a peckle. And if we were to all put our peckle off 
in the middle of any proverbial town square and I were to pick up your peckle or my friend's peckle, I don't know that I would want that either. And I have the intellect and I have the chutzpah and I have the drive to try and make this happen. I really want, and if it's okay with you, I just want to end on this note. There is an organization that I am trying to build. I want to call it Mipne Bochet because I think that would be hilarious. My friends told me that that would be funny for like five people, but I wanted to sort of put a twist on Mipne Bochet, who was Nechira Glaim, and, you know, he's still ate at David Hamalach's table. I want to turn that on its head. I don't want to say Mipne Bochet. Oh, we're going to help you figure out how to get a ramp in your shul. We're going to help you figure out how to get a ramp to your bima. I really am a weird person because I love doing tefillah kelim. I don't know why. It's just always been a mitzvah that I really enjoy. In the local Tinek mikvah, I cannot dunk any kli in the mikvah because the wall of the mikvah is too high. I said to somebody on the mikvah committee, hey, weird question, why can't we also, there's a lip, why can't we just make the water flow down the other way, create a ramp within the mikvah, so that way there's a small pool of water for somebody to be able to dunk his or her clee. And they said, oh, I guess we could look into that. You know, like, it just requires a little bit of a different mode of thinking. They did not do it yet. Um, maybe they'll do it if they listen to this podcast. Maybe maybe I'll be that annoying person and just email them again. But I think that thinking of things in a different way, and I think that knowing that there's some, there's some greater plan. And maybe the plan was, Scott, for me to be the advocate. Maybe the plan was for me to be the voice for people who are voiceless. Maybe the plan was for me to start an organization and be annoying so that way everybody can participate. Because if we want everybody to participate, then everybody has to be able to get in. You are right. And we want everybody to participate, not only for the sake of those who are participating, but for the sake of the other people who are already inside. We need more voices. We need more experiences. We will have a richer Jewish community. We'll have a richer human community if we let more people in instead of building walls to keep them out. So I wish you the best of luck. I'll just say, Rivka, that when you said before about the Peklach, it reminds me of something that one of my Rosh Yeshiva once was talking about when he was He's actually teaching the Mishnah, Ezehu Ashir HaSamech Bechelko, who is rich, he who is satisfied with his portion. And he was talking about how we say that wealth is a test and poverty is also a test. So, you know what? I'll take the wealth test. He goes, yeah, it doesn't work like that. You don't get to choose which test you're going to get. You don't get to choose what you're going to pick up off the floor. So I think there is tremendous wisdom in what you're saying right now. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your saying that. And I hope that People won't think of me as other. I I hope that people, you know, I, I hope that people will be sensitive in what they say. Somebody one time said to my brother when he was in shul, he went over to him and he said, how dare you be in that scooter? That belongs to somebody who 
really needs it, somebody who's elderly, whatever. And an old neighbor of mine, almost, he said, shoved that guest into a wall. And he said, you don't know, that happens to be that boy's scooter. He can't walk. You're a guest here. How dare you embarrass him? How dare you chide him for just doing his best? I think that people just need to try and be sensitive because my mom actually is a teacher and she used to put this saying on every student's desk at the beginning of the year. Be kind for everyone you know is fighting a hard battle. And everyone is fighting a hard battle. Some people's battles just look different. So true, Rivka. As you said, Yeshua Hashem Keharif Ayin, things can change the blink of an eye, hopefully for the better for all of us. So I certainly hope that your prayers are answered positively in the way that we all hope. And I am so appreciative of your being honest and putting up with my very personal questions today and being willing to discuss your situation and the situation of people who have disabilities in the Orthodox and Jewish community in general. Hopefully we can affect some change by simply allowing people to be more aware, more sensitive, and to try to bring people in instead of keeping people out. So Rivka Hertzfeld, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.